brethren, as Mr. McNair stated, this today, this very day, is exactly the 30th anniversary of the death of Herbert W. Armstrong. And I worked with Mr. Armstrong for about 36 years of my adult life very closely, and I loved him. I spent thousands of hours with him. I'm not bragging that, just like me any better. Some of the leaders of the other churches say they got to have a meal with him. Well, that's nice, but I got to have hundreds and hundreds of meals with him and really knew him. And I knew the good, the bad, and the ugly. So we don't worship Mr. Armstrong. Well, I can tell you sincerely before God that he was a man of God. And working with Mr. Armstrong through trial after trial, I can see and know that he was a man of God. And he was like a second father to me in a way. I really mean that. My father was a good man. And he was a college graduate. He was an accountant. He was also very athletic. He would rather have been a farmer or a rancher. But my grandmother talked him into getting a more steady type job. She looked at it. One of her brothers died of heat stroke on the farm in Oklahoma. And she wanted my dad not to be out like that. Where he would rather have been outside. He loved the out of doors. And he taught my sister... Catherine to really love the out of doors and me as well. But he did not understand the truth because God had not called him. It was not his fault. Mr. Armstrong did understand the truth more than anything being by far. And I began to be wondering about what was going on. I've told you this before, but my one of my two or three best friends, his name was Jimmy Mallett. And he got his neck broken in a wrestling accident. And he and I had wrestled together hundreds of hours on the Bermuda grass all over Joplin where dear friends tried out little jujitsu tricks on each other, two little bear cubs writhing around in the grass and loved each other. And it hit me when Jimmy died. Why did God, God let Jimmy die? So I began to seek God in my own way. And my uncle got me hearing Mr. Armstrong's program at night with him. And brethren, all across the United States, especially in the Midwest and the South, millions of people were hearing Mr. Armstrong. And I've told you some of the stories. I dare not take time from this sermon to tell all the stories today or we would be here till midnight. But many times, even on baptizing tours, I've told you about the one where Raymond and I got stuck in the mud up in northern Arkansas. And it was a very rainy night with the rain pouring down and the dirt road was filled with sludge, and our big Chrysler, old 46 Chrysler, this was 1952, so it was an older car given to us, to the work, I mean, not to us, but it, it sucked down in the mud. And Raymond hurt his foot and couldn't go, so I took off across the field and went through the cows, and I saw this light over there, and I went up on the on the porch, and I... I, I was afraid the guy might be mad. It was about 10, 30, or 11 at night, but I kept banging on the door. Finally, this great big farmer came to the door, and he said, What do you want? I said, Well, my friend and I are stuck out here in the mud, and I'm afraid we'll get hit when it gets light. We don't have any place to sleep or any food to eat. I said, Is there some way you could pull us in? He said, What are you doing out there? Well, we're on a visiting tour for a church, and, 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 and we're, out, we're from a college. I guess I, tried, I thought college would sound better. He said, what college? Ambassador. Oh, he said, Herbert Armstrong. I thought, oh, I hope he likes it, or some, some of them did like it. Some of them get mad. He said, Armstrong, I hear him every night on the radio. Go, let me go get the truck. He had this great big truck with heavy 
tires and chains. He pulled us all the way into Batesville, Arkansas, and pulled us right up to the motel, and we went in there and got a clean shower and took off the next day. He was very nice. Many people were like that. They would never forget that voice coming across the radio night after night after night, seven nights a week. It was a different time. There was no television. There was no Internet. Radio was the big deal, and he was on it all across the country and was on big full, uh, channel stations where you could hear him literally everywhere across the South and most of the Midwest. So he did a tremendous work, and God used him more than any man. And I think most of you know that in modern times to teach the truth. And, of course, he did a great job, and we're very grateful, and we should honor him. We do not worship him, but we should on this anniversary remember him. And, brethren, again, it doesn't make me any better whatsoever, because I have made hundreds of mistakes. But I'm the only one on the earth today, as far as I know, who can tell you this. Aaron Dean helped him the last five or seven years of his life and helped him write the autobiography of the second volume, at least, not the first one, and so, things like that. But he was going down was a sick man. I knew him when he was building the work. I traveled with him, slept in the same hotel room, room with him and all kinds of things. And so I know him better no one else could give you this. On the 30th anniversary of his death, I would like to tell you some things about this man that God used. I came out to Ambassador College in 1949 to check up on Mr. Armstrong, and I'm from Missouri, the show me state. And I was trying to check up on him. I wanted to learn the truth, but I also wanted to be sure it was right. And the very first letter my mother wrote me when I got to Pasadena she said, Rob, the Liberty Magazine has this article about the religious cults of California. She said, I don't want you to get into some terrible cult out there. Be careful. So I'd been there another week or two, and then I wrote her back. I said, well, I don't think it's a cult, but, Mother, if it is, you know how I move. I'm independent, which I was. I'd run away from home at age 14 to join the Marines, and I'd gone out to Pasadena to the college, even though they didn't want me to. They knew I was independent. And I was strong at that time. I could take care of myself. So I said, the door swings both ways. If it's a cult, I'll get out of here. But I ask all over the campus, where does the money come from? Who counts the money? Who takes the money to the bank? And I checked up on Mr. Armstrong in about 15 different ways. He waited three to four years till I graduated. One day we were talking. He just laughed. He said, Rod... He said, I know when you came out here, you went all over this campus asking questions. He said, I didn't mind. He said, we have nothing to hide. And Mrs. Armstrong told me a number of times, she says, Herbert could not be a hypocrite because if he did, he'd expose himself because whatever he thinks comes out of his mouth. And that was true. He did talk sometimes more than he should have, but he talked very, very openly. And if you got to know him really well, then you'd know everything. You'd know if his wife kissed him that morning or if he was upset about something or if he was having some bowel problems. He would tell you. He wasn't bashful about anything. So you got to know him very, very well. He was a very open man. He was a businessman. He wasn't nicey-nice. He didn't pretend like, Oh, it's so good to know the Lord this morning and talk like that. He didn't put on some kind of religious talk. He talked like a, like a radio broadcaster or like a businessman. He just talked straight talk, and he lived a straight life in that way, 
and certainly tried to give his life to God. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 16. Matthew chapter 16, brethren. Jesus Christ said here, as you know, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but he said in verse 18 of Matthew 16, he said, And I say to you, Peter said, you're the son of God. He said, I say to you, Peter, that flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but on this rock, upon this uh, uh, upon this rock, I will build my church. And of course, uh, the, the rock in that case, as we've explained so many times, was the word Petra, P-E-T-R-A. It means a massive boulder, a rock cliff, or a huge rock foundation stone. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So he told Peter that he was a rock earlier, but the term he used there was Petros, P-E-T-R-O-S, meaning a small rock or pebble. But this big rock is to be the foundation of the church of God. And we have to understand that. I've told our fellows, our other leaders here, we have this... Uh, most of you have heard our, our executive lunch every Tuesday or Wednesday. And I've told them many times, I said, sometimes it looks like we're really hanging, we're really in trouble. We're hanging by a very slender thread. Here I am, the human leader, 85 years old and getting weak. And under me is Mr. Ames, almost 80 years old, and he's getting weak. And you go on down, so many of our leaders are very weak. We don't have a lot of power. We don't have a lot of money. We don't have a lot of anything. We're hanging by a very slender thread. That's the thing above us, is a very slender thread, apparently. But underneath us, underneath us is a mighty rock. <laughs> and we know who that rock is. And that rock will not ever let us fall. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Because, brethren, we are the descendants of that church that Jesus Christ built. We really are. Mr. Armstrong was first ordained and worked for a while with the Sardis Church, the church era before us. Back in Acts chapter 20, if you turn to Acts 20, you'll notice here the Apostle Paul was talking to the Ephesian elders, and he told them, uh, I'm going to try to start reading here in verse uh, uh, 27, he said, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. So, brethren, we've tried to tell you the whole counsel of God, too, holding nothing back to teach you the whole way of God. We do need to do it more perfectly, but we're trying to do that. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. These were the elders, the overseers. He'd really taught them in detail. To shepherd what? The Catholic Church, the Lutheran Church, the Methodist Church. What's the name? To shepherd the church of God. The church of God. The inspired name for God's church given 12 times in the New Testament. Look it up. Which he purchased with his own blood. For I know that after my departure, when Paul died, when Paul was not there anymore... Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. They're going to tear the church to pieces, these men that try to take over and cause division. Also from among yourselves men will rise up. Men right of your own elders and your own leaders sometimes, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. 
Therefore, watch and remember, Paul said, that for the space of three years, I did not cease to warn every one of you night and day with tears. Night and day with tears. Please, brethren, don't turn aside. Check up on the bad guys. Prove it yourself. Don't turn away. Don't turn away. Do not leave God's truth. For three years, he tried to beat that into their brain. But some of them turned aside anyway. And I've taught and trained more ministers directly than probably anyone else in the church because I taught the freshman Bible class far more than anyone else. And I taught many other classes as well for a longer period of time than any of our particular Bible teachers. Mr. Raymond Manair taught part-time, but for many years he didn't teach, and then he did teach, and then he was sent to New Zealand for several years, and then started teaching. And during many of those years, I kept right on teaching. So I've had that privilege, and some of those men turned aside. Don't ever think if someone's a big shot, they can't turn aside. Yes, they can. I can start naming names. I should not do that. Right from Ted Armstrong, right on down. Dozens of men who are evangelists, regional pastors, leading men in the church have turned aside. Don't think it can't happen to you. Paul pleaded with them, don't turn aside. Stay with the truth of God. So we've got to really understand that and take heed to that very, very much. As we go to the end of the apostolic era, every historian in the Bible certainly indicates the apostle John, everything indicates Peter died before 70 A.D., and Paul did, and most of the others, as far as we know. John apparently lived on longer than any of them. The Apostle John, the Apostle Jesus loved and gave him that long life. And the last letter, the last letter that John wrote, Third John, just back before Jude in the book of Revelation. Third John, beginning in, in verse 8. Just one chapter, Third John, verse 8. We therefore ought to receive such, that as these men that are going around helping those who are teaching the truth, that we may become fellow workers, or some translated co-workers for the truth, or co-workers for the truth. But notice what he says here. If you read this book, and I'm not going to read it all, but he mentions the word truth, truth, truth several times. He doesn't mention the church very much, I think just once. But he keeps mentioning the church, the truth. Why? Because the church was beginning to vanish. The church was beginning to be persecuted. The church was beginning to flee. The church was beginning to be divided. But the truth is always there. The truth, the truth. Prove it yourselves. Know it backwards, forwards, and sideways. That's what Mr. Armstrong tried to get us to do. And that's what I'm trying to get you to do. Prove that truth and never turn aside from it. So he says, stay with the truth. I wrote to the church, here he mentions the word church this one time, but Diotrephes, apparently one of these self-made teachers who loves to have the preeminence among them, always strutting his stuff, does not receive us. This Diotrephes had apparently taken over one of the local churches, and that man would not even let the apostle John, the last remaining true apostle, come into their church. He does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, praying against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren. See, he was not even receiving the true church of God people and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. So the doctrine kicked the right people, the good people out. 
and the church was taken over by bad guys. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God. Don't listen just to what they say. Watch what they do. By their fruits you will know them. Watch what they do. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth. Here it is again. At the end of his life, he kept talking about the truth, the truth, the truth, all through Second John and Third John. So we've got to hang on to the truth. There might be a time, and we'll be our, our hobo ready, and we'll have to flee. There might not be a local church we can attend, but we can always have our Bible. We can always follow the truth. We might not have a church, a local church, to help us and to hold our hands, but we have the truth. Don't give up. Hang on to the truth. The truth does not change. I always assumed that the Brick and Wood campus was the strongest because Mr. Armstrong was there more often. That was his favorite place. And Big Sandy was Ted's favorite place. And Pasadena, the original one, was my favorite place, but it was more the middle in between, so to speak. It was the older one. But Brick and Wood was more conservative because of the English-British uh, character being more conservative. When we closed, I was astonished. I won't better name them, but some of the department heads, the medical doctor there, within weeks, suddenly the Sabbath didn't exist anymore. They didn't have to keep the Sabbath. They didn't have to come to church. They didn't have to. They just went away. They had not proved the truth. So even though act, people act good, but watch what they do and realize that anybody can fall away. It doesn't make any difference. So we've got to understand that. Coming down from the Apostle John, brethren, most of you know the history, but be sure you read Mr. Armstrong's autobiography, and it will be very good to read The Incredible History of the Church of God by Ivor Fletcher. We've sent that book. Some of you have it. If you want to skip the first paragraph or two, tell it just about the background of ancient Israel, do that. But get into the church part. I'm sorry I didn't get the number of the page. But start there. But that gives a detailed history of the church Frankly, this man was writing it mainly when he was still a member of the Worldwide Church, and then later he was in United, then he came out of them and joined us. So he was not trying to write from the perspective of just one church, certainly not our church. He tried to be very, very objective. If you read it, you'll see that. It is the history of the church. This man took hours. I had two or three long talks with him, and he was not a scholar, but I said, I know how it is in England. I bet you were over in front of your fire the rain was coming down softly outside, and you had thousands of hours to research and to think. He was retired. He said, yes, that's it. Plenty of time to think. Sometimes deeper material comes out of the British. Because they're not in California. They're not at the beach. They're not on Coney Island in New York with lots to do. They're over in the, in the fog and the rain. They sit quietly by the fire, and they read, and they read, and they think. This man was like that. He wrote this very carefully. But after Jesus Christ's death and after the Apostle John's death, you had men coming down from the Apostle John and you read about the Paulicians. They're in Asia Minor, the area we call Turkey. Then later you read about the Waldensians under Peter Waldo who came along. And among them were God's people. They were not all God's people, by the way. Mr. Fletcher brings that out. Among them were those who kept the Sabbath and one or two or three of the holy days. You say, why didn't they keep them all? They didn't even have printed Bibles. 
We need to realize that. They did not have all the helps we have. They didn't have the Plain Truth magazine and a whole bunch of booklets. So some of them lost some of the holy days, but they had great furor, great debates about the court, like all the quarto decimans. It went on for hundreds of years, those people fighting in danger of their lives to stand up to be willing to keep the Passover on the 14th day. Quarto deciman, those people that would keep the 14th day Passover as it was trying to be changed by the pagans and get people into keeping Easter. So you had the Waldensians, then you had people like John James and many others in England who were in the Church of God. Then you had Stephen Mumford, and you had men coming along like A.J. Long and William Brinkerhoff, all here in the United States. And after them, Kid A.F. Duggar, and then A.N. Duggar, whom I kind of knew, and Mr. Armstrong knew very, very well. And then you come along to living. And right after Mr. Armstrong, the church came apart. And when I had to choose what to do, some people said Rod Meredith always wanted to have his church. I just tell you before God, that's a lie. That is a lie. Liars don't get in God's kingdom. I was never trying to start my own church. I resisted and resisted. And my wife, Cheryl, pushed me to go one or two years a couple of different times even before I did. I said, I've always talked loyalty and I've got to stay. When I finally realized they were not going to get back on the track, it was very, very plain, then I did leave. I had to leave. And I looked around and I tried hard to get Raymond McNair and Herman Hay and some of the original students to come with me. I, I talked to them. I took them to lunch. I argued with them. Why don't you come? Join me. Help me. The evangelist who told me what was going on. He's still there, so I won't try to name his name. He knew. I said, well, if all this is happening, we better start something. He said, well, you know, we all have families. He began to backtrack real quick. He wouldn't come. I had to do it. I had to do something. I really did. I could not sleep with myself. I had to do something. And so we're here. And we're here because God guided it in that way. And we're going to carry on the truth like I was taught by Mr. Armstrong. And he was taught by the apostles through the Bible. And we all are trying to follow the truth. Not some particular idea of men, but the truth of God. And I challenge you to check up on us. Please study. Don't just read it, but study it. Go back and forth to where you know and you know and you know that you know what the Bible says. The truth is powerful, brethren. We do know the truth. And we're carrying on the truth like Mr. Armstrong always tried to do. So please understand that. This is your heritage coming right down from the apostles through these men and women in the Middle Ages and right down then through Mr. and Mrs. Herbert W. Armstrong. And Mrs. Armstrong had a powerful part in helping her husband get on the track. And in the early days, she had him when Herman Hay and I first started. She turned over the whole theology department to Herman Hay and me after a while. He saw we were faithful and he had to make all the broadcasts, do all the business decisions, and do everything. He couldn't do everything. He wrote all the articles at first. So he let us teach the Bible classes. But Mrs. Armstrong would often appear. And I knew why she was there. She was his spy. <laughs> that was okay. I knew her and loved her. And she loved us. But she just, you know, she sort of sat in to make sure everything was okay. And sometimes I'd come up to her later and say, what do you think? Is it okay? Am I doing all right? She'd say, you're doing wonderful, Rod. Keep it up. But she, she, she came in. He used her. 
he had her read whole sections of books. He, he was like me, and I, I don't mean to compare myself with him in the wrong way, but we're both very slow readers. And he would read slowly and mumble and mark things, and, and, and he didn't read very fast. She would really skim and get through her whole book real quick. So he had her read entire books and tell him the important parts that he ought to read so he could get the key paragraphs out of books with her help. She did all kinds of things to help him get the work going. And later on, Herman Hay and I helped get the work going because there was no Good News magazine for 13 years. Mr. Armstrong just couldn't do it all. I, I mean, he worked hard. I was there. I know he worked hard. He was going oh, 7.30 every morning. He was right in there making a program. Then he was talking to people, getting the radio stations, writing all the articles, and teaching classes, everything. So he worked very hard, was very tired at night, kept busy, preached all the sermons, counseled us afterward, baptized people himself. He baptized me, baptized Herman Hay, baptized all the early students personally and many others beside. But he couldn't do everything. So there's a 13-year gap with no good news magazine. Go look it up. Herman Hay and I were able to get it restarted. And you'll see my article, my first article, I think was the first or second issue called College Atmosphere and Ambassador in April 1951. So my first article came out when I was the spring semester of my junior year in Ambassador College. Then after a year or so, writing for the good news, Mr. Armstrong would evaluate us and try to get us to do better. Then he finally let us start writing for the plain truth. Then we got the plain truth out starting in January 1953. Before that, if you look back, the magazine would have gaps, five or six issues a year, and that was it. But from then on, we got it out. We had this magnificent office on the 10th floor looking out over Pasadena. No, we had a little card table behind the basement in the student center. That was the office of the Plain Truth magazine, a card table by the basement in Mayfair, the student thing, and that's where we did it. And I have to give Mrs. Elba Sedliotsik, my first secretary, Herman Hay, and I shared her. Her name was Elba Russell from Texas. She later married Richard Sedliotsik, who had helped my uncle later get out the correspondence course. And I would call Elba, sometimes Ken Herman or Marion McNair, where someone would get in an article and Herman would ask me, he said, well, Rod, I could paste up the magazine tonight and do the final editing, which we often did it together. But he says, if you could just write one article, we got a great big gap. So I turned out these literary masterpieces. I'm kidding. Some of the modern editors say, oh, how come you had all these simple articles? Well, you try to write your article real quick after a whole day of classes between 9 at night and 3 the next morning. So I would get out an article, and Elva would be right down there, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, as they say. She was just a junior girl in college, very energetic, very loyal. She said, can you come down at 3 o'clock and type? Oh, yeah, that'll be fine. She was right there every time typing. And uh, my sec present secretary, whom I love, has been so faithful now for 15 years, helping me and helping me and helping me, Monica, as you know. And my wife and I kind of adopted Monica about two years ago, before two years before she died as our, our adopted daughter, so to speak. We feel that way toward her. Monica's young enough technically to be my granddaughter, but uh, she's perhaps more like a daughter. But she got a beautiful picture to me after the feast. She had a picture taken. Our guest was Mrs. Sediatsik's idea. They had a picture taken at the Feast of Tabernacles in Arizona. And it's a beautiful picture with Mrs. Sediatsik and Mrs. Uh, and Miss Cormier. 
the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. <laughs> so a lovely picture I have in my office, the first and the last, and they helped me so much. But Ella would come down and type this article. She typed Herman Hayes' article if they needed retyping, and I didn't type very good at all, and his typing was not perfect. She would help us put the articles together, and so we did a lot. She had no office either. I mean, she literally had nothing. She'd just do it on the card table behind the furnace in the basement or take it up to her room and type it, then come back. So we got the magazine out, helping Mr. Armstrong and helping get the work. In the early days, we helped him, and I helped him get the churches going. I, I was privileged to help start the first church as a result of Ambassador College. September 1952, I started the church in San Diego. And in January 1953, a few months later, I started the first church up in the Northwest uh, New Church in, in Tacoma, Washington, and started that up there. And then I started many other churches after that. But I was used by God to do that, lead out many of the early baptizing tours and many other things. And Herman Hay was one of the earliest Bible teachers and full teachers, very smart, working and working and wording. We had others come along, Raymond Cole, Raymond McNair, the two Raymonds we called them, later Burke McNair, very faithful, and many others helped build the work through those years. Mr. Armstrong wanted that. We were not taking from him. He founded Ambassador College to get the help so the work could grow. So when we were graduates, we did help the work grow. But it was all because of that man. We learned the truth from him. And brethren, when I was in college... And after I graduated, he was the one who gave the church some of the most wonderful doctrines we've ever had that no other church on earth understands because of that man yielding himself to God. Most of you know that God is reproducing himself. God has called us to be his full sons, glorified spirit beings in tomorrow's world. We didn't used to know that. The Sardis Church didn't understand that. The Adventists don't understand that. They're split off from the Sardis Church. They try to say the Sardis Church was split off from them. No, they were first. The the Adventists split off. That's another story. God revealed that to him. Some say he was copying the Mormons. No, he was not. I was right there when he was talking about it for the first time in graduate class. His approach was 100% different. He began going back to Genesis each kind reproduces after itself. It says that four or five times. Then the next verse in Genesis 1 says, And God said, Let us reproduce man. What? After our kind? No, but after our image. Same thing. So God began to reproduce man in his own image. In the image of God, he made them male and female. He made them. And God is reproducing himself. And Mr. Arm proved that. He told us, fellas, check up, and if I'm wrong, show me I'm wrong. I want to know. It sounds like heresy. I don't want to be a heretic. And so Herman Hay and I and Ken Herman and others there, I can't say the other Raymonds because they went to the field, but some of us were still there helping him. And we went home and we tried to disprove it. We want, He wanted to look, and the more I looked, the more I saw it was not wrong. It was right. I was preparing to teach the Epistles of Paul class. And right in the epistle of Paul, as I was learning how Jesus Christ said in Romans chapter 7 or chapter 8 there, that we are, Christ is the firstborn of many brethren, many brethren. We're going to be glorified, it says, all kinds of statements showing we're going to be like God all the way through those things I was reading. He gave us that magnificent truth 
No other church understands that. The Seventh-day Church still doesn't understand it. No other church. We're the church that understands that. Why? Because that man immersed himself in studying the Bible day and night, asking God for understanding which which uh, uh, theological seminary did he attend? <laughs> the seminary of God. He studied the Bible on his own. He never went inside of a seminary in his whole life, so far as I know. He learned it from Christ through the Bible. He also helped us understand the last great day. Most people are just, you know, they don't understand when someone dies and Uncle Joe used to be a drunkard and he's dead or some bad guy that's, yet he's nice and you think, well, he's going to go and burn in hell forever. No, God has a plan to save those people later in the great white throne judgment. And when all the people went down in the Lusitania and later when all the people went down in the Titanic, you know, the people, how come that all those people, is that the end? No, that is not the end. Mr. Armstrong is the one who helped us understand that. Nobody else. Other churches don't. This church understands because God raised up one man. For centuries, the church of God acted during the 200s and 300s and 500s and 7 and 9 and 11 and 1300s. It was basically just in desolation. A tiny little group fleeing from the Roman Empire, virtually unknown. It was not growing. It was not God's time. But when the time came, God did not go to some theological seminary. God went to a man who had been a very successful, hardworking businessman, but was used to being a newspaper analyst, a bank analyst, to study and analyze how things worked and so on, help people build their businesses, and he had this analytical capacity. He called that man with the help of his wife. And when that man was called, if you read it in the autobiography, he studied this book, and he studied, and he studied. He said, oh, you've heard Mr. Armstrong? No, I didn't just hear Mr. Armstrong say that, brethren. If it helps any of you, let me say this. No one else can say this, perhaps, as far as I know. But I double-checked him. I talked to people. I talked to Mrs. Armstrong, apart to him, and his daughters, Beverly and Dorothy. I got to know them very, very well in the early days and spent many dozens of hours with them, maybe hundreds of hours, and they would talk very openly. they kind of gripe about their father being too strict or their father being gone or this or that. But I said, was he always studying? Yes, he was always reading and reading and studying at night. They acknowledged that. He dove into this book. And we've got to learn that from him. Have any of you ever done that? Have any of you ever gone on a crusade to fast and pray and study and meditate and seek God? And seek God? Mr. Armstrong did do that, brethren, and I've heard many people talk about it. Did he and Mrs. Armstrong do without up in Oregon, or is that just a big story? I went up and asked around when I was up there, working in the woods, and lived with some of the Church of God people one year. The Henyans, they were on the board. I wasn't even converted yet, or wasn't uh, fully converted, I guess. Anyway, I went up and stayed with them. I certainly wasn't in the ministry yet, I should say, and was still an undergraduate in college. But I asked many people all over, and many people acknowledged that when I became a minister, I'd ask some of the old brethren up there who had known the Armstrongs from way back. Some of them called them Herbert and Loma, or they called them Brother Armstrong. That's the way they talked up there. I said, did he really go around without, he always liked to dress real well and say, yeah, we know that. But he did have to go around with holes in his shoes and put pasteboard in there because he couldn't afford to get his shoes half-sold. 
he did go around with tacky shirts and sometimes an old jacket because he didn't have money to buy something new. And the brethren would have to help them out with food every now and then. Many, many brethren acknowledged that who were not on the payroll, had no reason to lie to me. I checked up on Mr. Armstrong. He and Mrs. Armstrong did go through that. He and Mrs. Armstrong did miss many, probably hundreds of meals and went hungry. That's why he tells a story about when Garner Ted was a little boy, they didn't even have milk. And he prayed that God would just give them one quart of milk. He said, I should have asked for more later. But then the doorbell rang just after five minutes after. The baby was still praying. He goes to the door and they were willing to give 10 cents for a pile of old papers. He went down to the basement and found some old newspapers and he had enough. The guy gave him 10 cents and you could buy a nice quart of milk with a cream on it for 10 cents back then. So they did. God heard their prayers again and again and again. And I've checked up on some of those miracles and they were miracles. They did happen, brethren, over and over. When I came to Ambassador College, I saw it with my own eyes. Many people were healed over and over. And when we first began to have the Feast of Tabernacles at Big Sandy, we had long lines sometimes going back 20 or 30 yards. And then we'd have these little booths there at Big Sandy, not the booths outside, but little rooms. And Herman, I would take someone, and Herman would take someone else, and, and the other ministers, Norman Smith or Raymond Cole, another person with us. We had four or five little rooms. They'd come along, they had these little prayer rooms. And we would anoint people, and quite often people would be healed right away. There was an atmosphere of faith back there, an attitude of expectancy. Because Mr. Armstrong, when he was all alone, he was missing meals, he was missing sleep, driving himself, reading this book. Then he got very close to God, and God honored that. He didn't make him rich right away or give him a lot of material things, but he did give him great spiritual wealth. And that's something we need more of today, all of us. Most of us don't need more material things. We need more of God's Spirit. That's our greatest need by far. We need to get that zeal back again. We need to get that absolute commitment back again. And we need to get that just sense of knowing that God will do whatever He has said that He will do. I want to have you read something here that certainly applies to Mr. Armstrong. Turn with me to John chapter 6. John, in your New Testament, the Gospel of John, chapter 6, he said in verse 53, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Are they an immortal soul? No, he goes on, and I will raise him up. He does die but he won't die forever. I will raise him up at the last day. There is a resurrection from the dead promised to those who eat and drink of Christ. Verse 55, For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. Here's the key. And I in him. If Christ abides in you through his spirit, you are eating and drinking of Christ. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. Brethren, this is the word of God. 
this is Christ in print right here, this book, the New Testament. If you feed on this book and study it, ask God fervently, help me really get it straight. Make it part of my brain. Blast it into my brain, Father. Help me really get it and be able to use it to help others. He says down in verse 65, he said, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Some of us want a bigger car or we want some big vacation in Hawaii or down in Africa or some, some special place. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. So these words are spirit. If you eat and drink of these words, you will live forever. You will live forever and ever and ever and you will be in God's kingdom and you will be given a glorified spirit body that will never die. And you will have power way beyond what you had, spiritual power and later even physical power as a spirit being in the very family of God. If you feed on Christ, and I sincerely, Mr. Armstrong never said I went around feeding on Christ. He didn't use that example about himself. I could say that to you honestly. I'm using that because I saw that's what that man did. Did he make mistakes? Yes, he did. He made a lot of crazy mistakes and then sometimes more serious mistakes where he had laid it on in his life, why he got weak and he ordained some people that should have been ordained and had a second wife for a while after his first wife died, of course, was legal. He made human mistakes. Did King David ever make a human mistake? Think about it. David was a man after God's own heart. And even though his son had turned on him, got a whole big army to run him out of the whole city, and he went across, he told him, don't kill Absalom. He was coming after him. When they killed Absalom, David said, oh, my son Absalom, oh, my son Absalom. He was mourning more for Absalom than he was rejoicing that his own men had protected him. And Joab finally came and he said, if you don't go out and comfort your warriors, they're going to turn aside and things are going to happen to you worse than anything that has ever happened to you since you've been born. <laughs> you know, so David realized he was mourning too much for his son Absalom who turned on him. He loved his son Absalom. He forgave him again and again and again and again. And Mr. Armstrong did that to his son, as some of you know. So I can understand it. I can understand other human things he did. But Mr. Arms tried to teach God's truth. He said many times, brethren, I've heard him say this 15 to 25 times. He said, Herbert Armstrong has made thousands of mistakes. But he said, I've always tried to be faithful to God's word and teach God's truth. And that was true. It hurt him to have to acknowledge publicly he'd been wrong on counting Pentecost. He'd been wrong on figuring divorce and remarriage and other things. But he would do that publicly when it hurt he was a proud man in a certain sense. He was older, thought he lived out his life and taught us the truth. And then he had to say, brethren, I've been wrong. Man, I remember so many times how he was teaching us how to count Pentecost that he'd get in front of the table. He said, one foot out from this table doesn't mean six inches back inside. He'd wave his arms. It means 12 inches outside. From means a way out of. So when it tells you how to count Pentecost, then you're supposed to count you know, one day a way out of. And yet he found out later, Raymond McNair kept going to him humbly and showing him that that could, that could mean, uh, it, it could mean uh, within, or uh, in other words, uh, from could mean counting from, counting with, beginning with, I'm trying to think of the phrase. So he finally didn't even trust him. 
he trusted Mr. Mr. Dr. Mazar's daughter, whom he'd known in Israel, and she was not in the church. She was totally, she was totally objective. She was a Hebrew teacher who grew up speaking Hebrew. And he asked her this question, knowing she had no religious prejudice, can this phrase mean, does it mean way out of explaining what he had in mind, or can it mean beginning with? She said, well, Mr. Armstrong, she said, it can mean beginning with. She said, the Hebrew is kind of a funny language, can have those different meanings. So when he realized it could mean beginning with, then he had to realize the day of Pentecost was not on Monday. Some of you newer brethren don't realize we kept Pentecost on Monday for years. Because Mr. Armstrong, away from means a way out of it. When you're to count the 50 days from the Sabbath during the days of unleavened bread, that's going to be starting not in, not with the first day, but after. Then you count 50 days and it comes out on a Monday. But if you count beginning with, it ends up on a Sunday, which we're keeping now. So Mr. Armstrong had to eat crow several times on things like that. He was human, but he acknowledged the mistakes publicly. But he did a lot of silly human things. As I say, he used to he used to preach two and a half or three hour sermons straight through. We were not the TV generation. We had longer attention spans back then. And we would listen. We'd enjoy it, most of us. We, sometimes our bottoms got tired and our back got tired. But we were getting something new, new, interesting, exciting. That man was filled with zeal. And sometimes about after an hour and a half, he'd say, well, brethren, I'm getting tired. He said, I'm going to go back to the Coke machine and get a Coke. He'd just tell us that. I'll be right back. Mr. Jones, who was the song leader, leave them in two or three songs till I get back. So we'd have two or three long songs, and Mr. Armstrong would come back from the Coke machine. And then as he started to preach again, he'd go, whoo, he burped real loud. He says, oh, don't worry, brethren, that's just the Coke. <laughs> so he, he was very human. He did some funny things. He showed he was human. He didn't try to act superhuman or act nicey-nice. He taught the truth. He taught the truth even though he had to miss food and miss sleep and miss a lot of things to do it. He tried to be faithful to teach God's truth. He could have gone back in the world and had made more money. He'd all done that before. He taught God's truth even when it hurt. So we are honoring him today on the 30th anniversary of his death. And he was not perfect, but we always want to remember our heritage. Our heritage comes down from the Apostle John through Jesus Christ, through John, right down through those faithful people, the Paulicians, the Waldensians, men like Peter Waldo and John James and others in Britain, and Mumford and others coming right down through A.J. Long and William Brinkerhoff and A.N.F. Duggar and A.N. Duggar, and right down through Herbert Armstrong to us today. We're carrying on that work, the truth of God. This is that church. And we were able to do that more perfectly, not that we're perfect, we are not at all. But the ones who started this work, brethren, most of you know that, you older brethren, some of you knew, please take note. It's not about me, it's just what Christ did. But we had far more in the early years of this work till they began dying off. And I'm the only one left, I guess, one of the very few left, of the early men who helped Mr. Armstrong build the work in the early days. One of his best friends in Ambassador College was Mr. Apartian. Mr. Apartian died, as you know, two or three, four years ago. It's a terrible thing. I, I know I, I like red wine tonight. It's kind of scary. Red wine killed my friend Debar Apartian because he drank red wine nearly every single night. And finally, 
at 94, he died. <laughs> I thought that's a good way to die. Die at 94, having drunk a glass of red wine like every night. He did that. He grew up part of his life in Europe, as you know, so they do that over there. So he was not a drunkard. He did drink, drink, but he, he was Mr. Armstrong's best personal friend in a sense for many years. He came with us. Mr. Raymond McNair was one of the pioneer students at first. He came with us. His, and we had, of course, later Carl McNair, who was a longtime minister and a regional pastor, very respected by the ministry. He trained a lot of these guys around other churches of God now. He came with us. And, of course, later Mr. Uh, Ames and, and Dr. O'Neill and Mr. Weston came in the 95, I guess. They came with us. But some of them, Mr. Ames had worked some with Mr. Armstrong during the earlier years. They came with us. No such men came with some of these other groups. Not one. They came, they knew who was carrying on the same work Mr. Armstrong was, and we were the ones that helped Mr. Armstrong build the work from the beginning. So we did do that, and God has blessed us by letting us have a larger circulation magazine than any other, and now we have, of course, uh, more stations and more power over television than any other but we are not even beginning to have the impact yet that Mr. Armstrong did because we don't have the same capacity. God did a greater work through that man. Some of you know I just said you could go from coast to coast almost through the south and Midwest. It'd be hard to escape where he had an impact. The Plain Truth magazine got up to 8.3 million subscribers. All we have today is half a million he was up to eight, almost 17 times as big in circulation. The money, the income got up to 11.7 million. I mean, I'm sorry, 211, 211 million. And of course today that would be more like a half a billion dollars in today's money. We don't have that today. God has not blessed up that same degree. God did use that man in a remarkable way. So we do want to remember our heritage and honor him, and in that way we're honoring God. As I've said before, and when Mr. Apartheid was here, he agreed with me. Several of the older men have heard him agree. He knew Mr. Armstrong very well. I said, if Mr. Armstrong were here today, and we said, well, we're, we're learning certain truths. Mr. Ames has come up with a deeper understanding of going to heaven. We do go to heaven very briefly at the wedding supper. Just at the wedding supper. That's not our eternal reward. We've grown. Dr. O'Neill has given a more full understanding of the, of the uh, falling away. It could be great rebellion. It's talked about a huge rebellion, not just in the church, but at the time of the end. And we've grown in a number of ways like that to understand many things more fully. Would Mr. Armstrong be upset? I knew him terribly. No, he'd say, Rod, I'd do the same thing if I were still alive. I'd keep growing. You must just say that you, we don't attack the basic things, as you know. Unlike worldwide, we're not talking about doing away with the Sabbath or the Holy Days or anything. We're just adding little bits and pieces. But the big framework was given to us by God through the Bible, through Herbert W. Armstrong. That one man and the impact he had upon thousands of us who were in the church at that time. I'll never forget that. Never forget that. And I hope you won't either. Back in Revelation chapter 3, if you turn back there with me, God describes the era that Mr. Armstrong came into when God was first calling him. In Revelation uh, chapter 3, 
we find here, earlier you find in chapter 2, the history of the Ephesian Church of God, obviously the Church of the Apostles, and then right after that, beginning in verse 8, chapter 2, the Church of Smyrna, and he says, I know your works, your poverty, and, and, and you know these false prophets, but do not fear any of these things which you are about to suffer, verse 10, Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful to death and I will give you the crown of life. Brethren, that did not happen during the Sardis time. That did not happen during Mr. Armstrong's time. Many of us young men went on baptizing tours. I've told you we had some rocks thrown at us, men cussing us, hitting us, slapping us, throwing rocks at us, trying to hit us with a chair, stuff like that. But no one ever shot us. No one ever died. They did the Sardis church, and they did the Smyrna church, I mean. It was a terrible, terrible time. He describes these things that did happen. Then he describes the church during the Middle Ages with that great woman calling herself Jezebel. The great false church grew, rose up to power, and God's church had to flee. But right after that, coming into modern times, in the 1800s probably, he says in chapter 3, to the angel of the church of Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven stars of God, I know your works, that you have a name. You have the name Church of God, which they did. Mr. Armstrong came into it. It was called the Seventh-day Church of God, or Church of God's Seventh Day. You have a name that you're alive, but you are dead. And brethren, Mr. Armstrong described again and again how he found them that way. And I got to visit the Sardis Church in an interesting way several times. In fact, the whole summer of 1950, Mr. Armstrong told us to attend the Church of God up in Jefferson, Oregon, because we were working up there in a lumber mill, Owen Smith and Ken Herman and me. And so we went into the church, the Sardis Church up there, the Seventh-day Church. When we first marched in, the three young men, we had our... $39 suits on, we weren't well dressed, but we did the best we could, and the ministers and people, some of them thought, wow, Armstrong's men had come to take over. What? I was 19 years old, I just barely converted myself, we weren't ready to take over anything. They were afraid of us at first until they realized, oh, we'd come there to worship with them. They were nice people. I'd had some nice people in the Methodist church, they were nice people too, but they didn't really understand very much. They knew about the Sabbath, they knew about clean and unclean meats and a few other things, but they didn't understand anything about prophecy. They didn't understand our national identity. They knew nothing about the last great day and what it means. They did not keep the holy days. And they certainly didn't know that man was being reproduced to be like God. They didn't know that they would not accept that, nor their leaders would not accept it. So many things they did not know. So they say, well, and how's the crops today? Well, okay, I guess. And so they talked about stuff like that. They had no worldview, no fire in the belly to get God's work around the world. They didn't understand that. They didn't think that way. But they were nice people. But they were spiritually dead. They did not grow. They had not grown probably one whit for a hundred years. They just stayed the same, had a nice country church. You were alive, but you were dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. Even the ones that remain are ready to die. Interesting, that's powerful when you think about it. They're there, but they're ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. 
Remember, verse 3, remember therefore how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Keep at least the truth you have, he said. Therefore, if you will not watch, and they didn't know how to watch very well because they didn't understand who we were. They didn't know our national identity. When they read all these scriptures about what was to happen to modern Jacob, the time of Jacob's trouble, it had no meaning to them because they did not know who we were. But he said, watch, you will not know what hour I will come. You have a few names, even in Sardis. Notice how the scripture words that God inspired it, even in Sardis, you know, so, wow, even in Sardis there are a few righteous names, he said, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot his name out from the book of life. He doesn't say he's going to make them kings and priests and give them great power. They weren't able to do that. They were just kind of drifting along. They weren't growing, so at least he would not brought their name out of the book. They'd be there, but they'll be like doorkeepers. They'll just sort of barely make it. They'll be like doorkeepers or whatever. I won't blot your name out, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Brethren, as we've said to you, Please, brethren, you young people, get a copy of Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong's autobiography. Except for the Bible itself, that's one of the key things you should all read if you possibly can. Get a volume of Herbert W. Armstrong's autobiography. It has two volumes. Get them both if you can. They're not hard to get if you look around on Amazon and places you could get it like that. Some bookstores even have it downtown probably. You could get it if you want to that autobiography. He mentions me more in chapter and volume two. He mentions me six or seven times in a good way. But the first volume is more important because he shows how God called him, dealt with him all the trials he went through when he was studying and praying and studying and staying up night so he could really be sure and know that, know that you know that the truth is right. It's a fantastic volume, a book of faith, of courage, of constant dedication and all that kind of thing. And people can say, that's made up stuff. Well, I thought it could be. I heard people make fun of it. So I went up and checked on it. I found out those, those stories are true. They did happen. Mr. and Mrs. Armstrong sacrificed, sacrificed, sacrificed. In their later days, they didn't have to. They didn't then, but boy, in the early days, they did. And God blessed them and blessed them and blessed them for that. He pounded that book into his brain. He studied this book. He studied, as he says, on his knees. You don't have to study the Bible on your knees all the time, but once in a while it may be good if you really need to get closer to God and need God's special help. Get on your knees. Say, Father, teach me. Train me. Help me understand. Give me strength to understand this book and live by it. Help me, O God, and cry out to God. Put your heart in your prayers. Mr. Armstrong used to say many times, he thought that was the greatest lack of the prayers of God's people as far as he could see. He said, we do not put our hearts in our prayers. Sometimes we just have a routine prayer, but our whole being is not wrapped up in that prayer. So you want to really pray with your whole heart. By the way, when you give thanks for your meal in front of others, you don't do that. You're not trying to impress them. That's in your personal prayers to God, just between you and God in the four walls. Go into your own room, shut the door and pray to God who sees in secret and he will reward you openly.
Remember how he says that. Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 6. So he says, God will bless you. And, and he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this Sardis church was just drifting along. They were doing no real work. I grew up in Joplin, Missouri, in southwest Missouri, in northwest Missouri, right up the state line, more or less, for me, was Stanbury, Missouri. That was their world headquarters. And I was president of the Junior College Luncheon Club, a club devoted to world events, and I was reading the news all the time, and even in high school, I never heard of them. I didn't even know such a church existed, nor did most of you until you came in touch with us. I had to learn there was a church like that from Mr. Armstrong. They were dead. They had their little social club on Saturday, but they were doing no big work, and most people on the earth never heard of them, never would hear of them. We must not be like that. We're supposed to be like this Philadelphia church, which comes next. So here we come to the Philadelphia church, to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, verse 7. These things says he who is holy, he who is true, true, he who has the key of David. And by the way, I've written a whole article on that. I've reprinted it, make it bigger. The key of David. The key of David is not just the understanding of the throne where that stone of scone is. It's the understanding of right church government. Correct church government. David is always mentioned as the benchmark of the one who followed God. Therefore, King David is going to be the head over all Israel. All the twelve apostles report to King David, and King David reports to Christ. If we have the key of David, who opens and shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door. Most of you know that in, if you want to write these down, if some of you are a little new, here I'll try to say these slowly. Write these scriptures down, brethren, any of you who don't know this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, that is 2 Corinthians 2, 12, uh, Colossians 4, 3, and then 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 16, 1 Corinthians 16 it is, verse 9. All these references in the Bible indicate that an open door is an opportunity to preach the truth. He was opening up a way to reach a certain city. That was what open door meant. God gave Herbert W. Armstrong the open door of evangelistic tours up and down the Northwest, but then later he opened up the open door of radio. Mr. Armstrong didn't realize he had a radio voice, but he had one of the best radio voices in the world. And he had a marvelous voice. My voice is getting much worse in my old, old age, and it was not terrible. I was on the radio some, and he had me do, I did 12 or 15 radio programs on the World Tomorrow broadcast years ago under Mr. Armstrong's direction. But my voice is getting husky now as I get old. But his voice was outstanding. God used him to go through the open doors. And no one shuts it, and no one opens. So it's God that does it. Christ is in charge. I know your works. They have set before an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength. You better believe we have a little strength. We are very small, a little strength. You have kept my word. Remember what Mr. Armstrong said? Many times he said, Herbert Armstrong has made hundreds of mistakes. But I've always tried to be faithful to teach God's word. And that's the key. 
He did teach God's word faithfully, even when it hurts. So you have kept my word and uh, have not denied my name. We have not denied Christ's authority, everything his name stands for. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, these false preachers who say they are Jews, but lie. I indeed will make them come and worship before you. Eventually, these false people will come and worship before us. Why would they worship before us? Because we will then be worthy of worship. We will be members of the very family of God. That's another scripture we should use when we're proving who we are. The ultimate reward. We will be worthy of worship. Because he said, I will make them to come and worship before you. To know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere. And brethren, you've got to do that. I've got to do that. It's been a long haul for me. I've been in the church over 65, 66 years now. I've waited and waited. We hoped Christ would come in 1975. He didn't do it. And then Bill Dankenbring and others had dates set in 1984, 1989, and 1986, and other times. Some of these guys had their ideas. One of our ministers said, well, if Bill keeps setting a different date someday, he may be right. <laughs> Keep setting a date. Move it forward. Move it forward. We've had to wait. He's still not here yet. But as I've explained to you, and we've looked into it, that word in Second Peter, when it says Christ is going to come in a thousand years, it, it can mean about. It is not exact. And all the scholars I ever talked to in our own church acknowledge that even if it were to be exact, their way of counting is not exact. You go back before the time of Christ and you can't be sure of the accession years of the kings and things like that. So we easily could be 30 or 40 years off. And if we're 40 years off from 2000, then the tribulation would begin in, in 2036 or 7, then Christ would come in 2040. There's still plenty of time. So don't give up because of that thought. Do not give up because of that. God will do what he said he will do. And he always has. So he says, persevere. I also will uh, keep you from, if you're persevering, if you hang in there, I will keep you from the hour of trial. Notice how it's worded. Just some local trial that happens once in a while. I will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. The great tribulation. There's never been a trial like that coming on the whole world that's going to come in the next several years of your life if you live on. I may not be here, but many of you younger people will be here. It will probably occur that great time of trial sometime in the next 7 to 17 years. That's just Meredith's guess, so I shouldn't even say that. People get on me when I say that much. That's my guess. But we don't know. It might be longer. So I think Christ is going to come in less than 20 years because of things that are happening right now. But it, it probably is going to be at least 8 or 10 more years. So we've got a few more years. And we've got to use that time to get ready. We must not give up. We must persevere. Say, God, help me to be faithful to the end. Help me to use the time I have today. Help me to study this word. Help me to get your message to the world every way I can with the talents I have, the experience I have, the strength that I have. 
So you've kept my command to persevere, then I will keep you from the hour of trial that will come on the whole world. Why? To test. Boy, is it going to be a test. People are going to be scared to death. Many of their neighbors and loved ones will be killed and tortured and all kinds of horrible things. It won't be a fun time. You young people, you've never seen anything like that. It will not be a fun time. It's going to be horrible to test the whole world. Is God real to you? Can you prove it to yourself and know and know that you know that you're willing to go through trial? You get beat up, thrown in jail, killed if need be to test those who dwell on the whole world. Behold, at this time he can say, I come quickly. Once that stuff begins to happen, it's going to boomerang forward. I come quickly. And so we need to understand that. Hold fast. Don't give up. Hold fast what you have, that no one take your crown. Don't let anyone take the crown of job, your position, being a king over a city or a nation or ten nations, maybe a whole planet in tomorrow's world. Don't give it up. Don't let anyone take your crown because you get your feelings hurt. You're feeling sorry for yourself. You get mad at Joe, Joe, Joe or Mary or someone next door. They made a mistake. Well, think about it. Do you make a mistake? Of course you do. Forgive others. Go on. Don't let anyone take your crown. He who overcomes, <clears throat> I will make him a pillar, a strong support in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. Many of us had to go out from worldwide who are in worldwide because I was in worldwide 40 years and I waited until I knew I had to go out. I did not want to be disloyal. I did not want to start something different. I did not. I was thrust out. I had to leave finally. And they'd already decided to put me out of the ministry and, and cut me off. They said, you would not accept the changes. That's right. I said, I do not accept the changes. And I will not accept the changes. And if someone comes at me later with a hot iron, I hope I'll still have the faith. I say, I will not accept that. I will give my life for the truth. And I've tried to do that as a living sacrifice. And if I have to do that as a dead sacrifice, with God's help, I'll do it that way. And I hope you will too. It'll be a test. Hold fast. He who overcomes will be a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out. We had to leave at one time to leave the worldwide church of God. You will go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. The very name, the, the, the stamp, that these are people connected with God, with his very city, with his name. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven for my God, and I will write upon him my new name. My name may not be Roderick Meredith, it may be something else. He may give me a na name from the new language, which may be the original Hebrew, a name meaning something with great meaning. And your name may be changed to something with great meaning when you remember the very family of God, a new name. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Man, do we have a lot of good things to look forward to. It's going to be awesome. We've got to hang in there. We must never, ever quit. Then he says in verse 14 to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, that's the next era, 
is beginning right now. Many of our brethren around the world are already laid in sin. And some of you in this room are laid in sin probably. Get it, I mean that. Some of you are probably laid in sin right here looking at me today. You need to examine yourself. Think about it. Think about it. Don't be afraid to face reality. You're going to have to face reality one of these days. So he says he, the church of the things, waters things down. These things says the faithful, the amen, the true witness, and the originator as it is of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. God doesn't say the latest sins have a false gospel. They don't have a false gospel. They understand most of the truth. Thousands of them have been, been taught by me, by Dr. Hay, by Mr. McNair, and by Mr. Ames and Dr. Renale. They've been taught the truth. Thousands of them out there through our ministry. Some of you taught some of them who are laid as sin. Some of our ministers right here. Nice people. But they're late. They're neither cold nor hot. They just have a social club on Saturday afternoon. They do not have the fire in their belly to reach this world. They're not trying to change the world and prepare for the kingdom of God in a very real way. So because you're lukewarm, lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, he said, I want you cold out there shivering, or I want you right square in the fire, stirred with zeal one way or the other. Don't just be lukewarm. You can be a nice people, person just drifting along. I don't want that. He said, because you're that way, he said, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's pretty strong. I will spit you out of my mouth because you say I'm rich and wealthy, increased and good and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, spiritually blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. Go through trials and tests if you have to, but be a Philadelphian. Be a full Christian. Don't be a latest in. Never turn aside. Never water things down. Brethren, please get this. Don't turn aside. Don't water things down. Be a Philadelphian Christian in that way. Be a, the Apostle Paul Christian, where you're going to charge around and be willing to go through 30 lashes, be thrown in jail, beaten up, stoned, left for dead, whatever it is. Go all out. This is the church of the living God. We have a wonderful heritage. Let's keep it up. Let's never, never, ever turn aside.